1: Hi, welcome to Finders Grievers, a happy-ish podcast about sad things. I'm your host, Shohana Sharman. In today's episode, I am talking to the award-winning writer, poet, and occasional rapper, Mugabe Bianchia. Mugabe was born in Nigeria to Ugandan parents and is currently based in Kampala. He is the author of the award-nominated debut novel Dear Philomena, which was published in 2017 and which he has toured around five countries and 43 cities across North America and East Africa. In 2018, Mugabe was named one of 56 writers who has contributed to his native Uganda's literary heritage in the 56 years since independence by Writavism, which is East Africa's largest literary festival. Dear Philomena, Mugabe's debut novel, was named a Ugandan bestseller in the same year. So, without further ado, let's say hi to Mugabe. (laughs) That's great. Are you in, um, where in Uganda are you right now? Kampala. Kampala. And is that where, like, that's where your family is?
0: Yes, yes. Um... My mom is here. I have a bunch of cousins, a bunch of uncles, a bunch of aunties. Like majority of the family is here, and then you got some family members also spread out across the world.
1: That's great, nice. And how's the weather there right now? Um, it's good. It's good.
0: Um, it's like right. We're we're right on the equator, and so weather-wise, it's like one of the like optimal places to be year-round because like. It like never drops below 10 degrees and never really goes above 35.
1: That is, that truly is perfect. I, um, I grew up in Bangladesh where I think it was like similar, not quite, not quite the same, but I think it definitely went above 35 a lot of the time, like in the summer. Um, but yeah, I just, uh, I remember always just being mostly comfortable sometimes hot and then i moved to canada and i'm always cold doesn't matter where you put me what time of year i'm always like i should just just pack a jacket just in case
0: yeah i mean people like us were literally not designed biologically for north america
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah truly (sighs) just forcing my body to stay here that's all i'm doing um, well, it's so good to see you, and thank you so much for doing this. I haven't seen you, si- well, definitely way before the pandemic. I think the last time I saw you is, I want to say, like, November of 2019.
0: Yeah, because I remember, like, I, like, l- like um, had, like, some, like, a period of, like, really bad health. Um, and I wasn't able to make it to, like, the last, like, tail end of the fellowship. Mm-hmm. I, I think one of the last times we saw each other was at the Buy Arts Festival, honestly, because I think that was one of my last few like decent days health wise.
1: Yeah, I do remember. I remember seeing you there. Uh, I'm sorry you had some health troubles. Um, how are you doing now? Uh, I
0: mean, still going through it. Like my health issues are like long term and like very uh, complicated, and so it's one of those things that I've just been dealing with since I was a kid, and like just continue to deal with, it. and it's, um, and so I've just been trying to figure out like how best to manage for now because over the past year no doctors being like actually able to like sit down and talk to me because of COVID yeah Um, so I'm just waiting things out
1: how is COVID in Uganda sorry we're gonna get to the podcast in a second I'm just fascinated um how how is the pandemic how has the pandemic affected Uganda
0: COVID in Uganda is honestly being handled way better than the majority of the world so I'm grateful we have a population of about 40 million so roughly the same as Canada but like if you compare our COVID cases to Canada which is like the same size population wise we we only have 10,000 cases and like
1: 335 deaths. Oh wow okay wish there were zero cases wish there were zero deaths but you know in comparison that's very good.
0: Yeah it's been fascinating for me to watch how the pandemic plays out worldwide because like A lot of the Western world has just never had to handle an epidemic before. Mm -hmm. Because, like, I saw this happen back when Ebola broke out in the States, because I was in the States in, like, 2014 when it broke out. And, like, the entire country was flipping out, and nobody had any idea what to do. It was spreading, and people were freaking out. And I was like, I've been through, like, five Ebola epidemics in my life. And, like, Ebola outbreaks, quarantine, isolate the area everybody moves differently. You, 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 you don't shake anybody's hand for a couple of weeks. You don't keep any close contact with anyone. Like The, the health advisories go out and everybody moves. Like Even in church, like you don't do the be with you anymore when there's an Ebola outbreak. And within two weeks, Ebola is contained and it's gone. And so I didn't understand why North America was taking so long. Then I realized, oh, they've never had to handle an epidemic before. This is like their first time. Um, Whereas we have a lot of experience, which is why I think the African continent is doing so much better than the rest of the world, because we've handled epidemics before. This is just one on a larger scale. And we have the systems in place to move differently and to move accordingly.
1: That's fascinating. I'm glad that, you know, it's been handled so well where you are.
0: Me too. I'm, I'm really grateful to be here during the pandemic.
1: Yeah, for sure um so thank you again for for doing this I I think you and I kind of I don't know if we ever explicitly chatted about losing a parent but I know it's something that that has come up in conversation and that um I knew that uh you had lost a parent from some of your artistic work too so I just wanted to start at the very beginning tell me about the person you lost
0: uh, the, the person I lost is my father. I, I, I always don't know whether to say is or was when talking about someone who's passed on, you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm the same. Um, his name is uh, Ladislaus. He was named after uh, the Polish missionary that um, converted his folks to Catholicism. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's one of those things like people think of colonization as something that was like centuries ago, but like it's one generation.
1: Yeah, it's so recent, right? Um, what was he like? He was a workaholic, definitely.
0: That's like, unfortunately, one of the things that contributed to his passing. And so it's like one of the lessons that like I take. He was also like surprisingly sensitive for a man of his generation. Because my mom often says that like he was the person who got her more in touch with her feelings.
1: Wow, that's fascinating. Um, did he have any hobbies?
0: Uh, chess. He loved playing chess, and uh, he taught me how to play chess at a young age. Yeah, we had a lot of fun playing chess.
1: Oh, man, my dad loved chess, and he tried to get me into chess, but I just...
0: Chess is one of those games that, like... If you want to get past a certain level, you have to learn the strategies. You have to learn the code. You have to like get one of those chess books to like teach you the different like techniques and stuff. Um, otherwise, you really can't get past a certain.
1: Yeah, thing. I was like ten years old.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. As a ten year old, you don't want to sit down and learn chess. <laughs> yeah,
1: strategies. I was ten, and I was like, I have better things to do, man. I don't. This is, seems fun for you. It's not as fun for me. I'm gonna bounce. <laughs> so I just gave up after a while.
0: One of my favorite memories about him was. He used to sit me and my brothers down, um, like, on a random Saturday uh, and uh, take us through manhood lessons, which, like, <laughs> at the time, I was like, yeah. <laughs> it, it started around the same time puberty started, because when I started hitting puberty, he was like, Mugabe, you're becoming a man now, so it's time for you to join the manhood lessons." And, like, in these, like, manhood lessons, it was interesting, because, like, we had like family meetings as a family. Anytime we had to like talk about something as a family, which I appreciated because like it like fostered our input as the kids. Yeah. Um, it wasn't like I mean it, it 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 was a lot more authoritarian, typical immigrant, um like global south parent sort of narrative until I think my mom had to have a conversation with him about being a more active father and being more present in the kids' lives. And so my siblings have a complete different view of him than I do. My siblings view him as an authoritarian up until Mugabe. Wow. (laughs) Whereas like me and my little sister view him as like the active parent because that's all we know.
1: That's so interesting. Um, I'm very pleasantly surprised to hear that um, the manhood lessons were a favorite part for you. Like what, what was he teaching you?
0: Well, a lot of what the manhood lessons were was feminism, which like, I thought that, like, everyone grew up like that, but, like, I'm realizing that, like, but as I grew older, as I talked to my friends and, like, learn about their relationships with their fathers, I realized that, like, a lot of, like, fathers do not teach their sons about, like, the patriarchy and stuff like that at a young age.
1: That's so cool that he was, that's so amazing that he was having those conversations with you at such a pivotal age, too. It's really wonderful.
0: And a lot of them were like practical, like biological stuff. You're going to start developing hair, you know, like it's you know normal, it's natural, like all this like general puberty stuff that like I find a lot of parents avoid having these discussions with their children, which also doesn't help things uh, because then the <laughs> kids go to the Internet, which <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> can become a, a minefield. That's not
1: exactly a healthy education on the Internet. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. So... Um, you've already touched on this a little bit, but I'd love to learn a little bit about the rest of your family and your home. So you mentioned your mom, your siblings. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about them?
0: My mom had a very similar background to my father because both my mom and my dad are come from families with nine siblings. And so large, large uh, immediate families. And both of them come from rural parts of Uganda. Um, and both of them like worked their way through school and like had jobs on the side to be like my mom like is like an even more impressive story than my dad because my dad was a man and so he was allowed to like just go to school full-time and focus on the books and through the books he was able to get scholarships and all these opportunities Uh, but my mom had to work while being in school
1: you mentioned that your relationship with your father was maybe a little bit different from your siblings, So I'd love to learn a little bit more about that. How did, how did your sibling's relationship differ from yours when it came to your dad?
0: Uh, With my siblings, like they grew up with a man that I don't know until I came around. The stories that they tell me and like, of like how he used to be, like to me, it's like, (laughs) I didn't even know that this person existed because like both my parents would like, like beat my siblings like whenever they did something anything wrong, which is a common practice across like all global South parents, you know. But like me and my little sister didn't really grow up with that.
1: It's it's very interesting how our parents have like very different relationships with each of their children. I like
0: put it all to my mom because she like, took parenting classes.
1: Oh wow, that's amazing.
0: Yeah, because she realized that like she wasn't sure about the way that she was raising my siblings. And so she took parenting classes, she read a bunch of books, and then she took everything that she'd learned from that back to my dad and was like, we need
1: to change the way we're parenting these kids. And this must have been in the, like, 80s, early 90s, I'm guessing?
0: Yeah, yeah, I was born in 92.
1: That's unheard of. Like, I (laughs) I actually don't know if I know anyone else who's taken parenting classes. That's really, really cool. Yeah. And,
0: like, it, it helps the kids. Like, like all my siblings, like, are, like, you know, like, we're so glad. All my older siblings are, like, we're so glad that that shift happened because, like, our lives became so much better.
1: Yeah. Um, how did your dad pass away? So he, like, had a whole bunch
0: of, like, different, like, issues at the same time. And so it was one of those, like, multi-illness, like, battles. And he spent like nine months in the hospital and he'd had health issues on and off his whole life. But like, I think what eventually led to his passing was he developed a lymphoma.
1: And how old were you at the time?
0: I was 13.
1: 13. Wow. That's a really important age. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Because that's right when puberty started popping off. It was a very confusing time.
1: Yeah. So can you tell me about how you first learned about your dad's illness? I first,
0: I, I mean, I knew all along that, like, he'd had, like, some, like, health issues because, like, throughout my life growing up, but, like, he always blamed it as, on being uh, PTSD from the war. Hmm. Um, he always attributed it towards that, which he definitely did have, uh, but he had other stuff that he just wasn't open about to us as the kids because he didn't want to worry us. But um, he was open to, like, my mom and, like, people of his, you know, age group around, um, which I found out later uh, from my mom. But I remember, like, whenever he'd, like, because he'd, he'd come home every day at uh, around lunchtime um, to take a 30-minute nap because um, he wasn't getting enough sleep because he was a workaholic. And so every day he'd have a 30-minute lunchtime nap. And I remember one time I went to go wake him up from his nap, and he, like, freaked out and, like, went into like panic mode and like started gasping and I was like, what's going on? And then like he had sat me down for this huge lecture about like the appropriate way to wake him up because of the trauma from the war. Like if he's woken up too suddenly, um, he flashes back and I was like, Oh, sorry. Like I, because I, <laughs> I grew up without it, it, incredibly privileged, you know, like I, I have never experienced a war in my life. Like war is a reality to both my parents and, Like, they lived through it. And, like, my oldest sister nearly died once the, like, mortar hit, like, right by their house. And so, like, they have a lot of trauma and a lot they carry from that. And so I was, like, I'm a kid. I don't know what's going on, but, like, I'll respect it and I'll move forward. But in terms of, like, his illness progressing to the point of needing hospitalization, it was, I remember, like, one day when, he had to get like airlifted out of the country because uh, we were living in Cambodia at the time Um, and the medical equipment there at that time wasn't what he needed and because he had a great job uh, with an amazing um, health insurance package uh, because he signed it back in the 80s and like i don't understand what they were giving people up because i'm still under it even though he passed away In 2005, I still have health insurance just by being his son, which, like, I don't even understand what sort of policy that is, but it's amazing. Uh, They don't give those out no more. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I remember being, like, very terrified at that moment because he'd been airlifted out and nobody knew what was going on. And then for the next nine months, um, he was away in the hospital somewhere else. And I'd hear snippets of news from various people. But like my mom would like, you know, try to shield me from it. And the day he passed, we were all together, which I was grateful for me and all my siblings and my mom, and my mom sat us down and yeah, told us that like I'm sorry to like, I, I forget how exactly she said it, but I remember she said it right. Um, I remember she didn't like because like there are lots of wrong things that you can do in that moment, and she didn't do any of them. I don't remember exactly what was said, but like it was a sense of like, you know, your dad passed, like, it sucks, like, I'm really sorry, I'm here for you, like, please, let's talk about it, mm-hmm. let's process through, like, cry, like, you know, feel what you have to feel and, like, process in any way you want to process. And she encouraged us to each have our individual methods of processing. And so, like, she was like, well, Gabby, I know you like writing, why don't you write something, like, write a poem or something like that to, like, get out these feelings. And I was like, that's great, you know? Um and like my brothers, who was like, yeah, I know you like playing basketball, like go out there and play that basketball and like get your emotions out physically.
1: I I have so many thoughts and questions. Your mother sounds like an incredible woman to be able to handle that news and deliver it and not just deliver it, but, you know, to then be... I don't know, like to to be like so present with each of the children, to be like, I know this is hard and this is how I think you would, this is how I think, you know, you could help yourself by processing. That's amazing. That's incredible. And so do you, I guess it's what's, um, so I remember You know, I was there when my mom passed away. I was in the hospital with her. So I can't imagine Uh, what it... That's tough. See, I was going to say the opposite. I was going to say it's so tough that, you know, he was away for nine months. And then that's how you had to find out.
0: No, I'm sorry. I just realized that I did not explain things properly. (laughs) He was away for the nine months. And then at the end of the nine months, he started getting better which I've found happens in a lot of people who die. Like, there's this, like, upswing of health. So, like, I think it's, like, so people can say their goodbyes. Um, I think it's, like, a body mechanism. I don't know. Um, but, like, there was, I found a lot of people who I talked to who know somebody who's passed on who has been battling a long-term illness. There's an upswing of health right before they die, where, like, all of a sudden they start doing better, and then they die. Um, and so he had that. And so because of that, he was transferred um, to another hospital where they were like, he can complete his recovery out there and then he can start working and we'll move the kids there with him too and the, and um, my mom. And so we were all in the same city. We visited him in the hospital like literally the day before and then we went back to our home and then my mom came from the hospital the next morning and it was like, she passed away. And so we were right there. We weren't physically there to like, you know, um, see him pass, but like we'd seen him literally the day before in the hospital.
1: Yeah. Okay. So at least you were able to see
0: him. It, it provides more closure.
1: And do you do you remember anything from that last visit? I remember um,
0: he, he seemed happy at, at that last visit. I remember because like I visited him a lot of times throughout the nine months, I think I visited him thrice throughout the nine months. like whenever I was on like holiday from school, again, shout out my dad's like insurance package, they'd cover flights for us to go visit. But I remember, like one of the first times I visited him, um, I remember like having to like later unpack a lot of ableism in the ways that like I saw him, because um, he had brain cancer at the time as well. Uh, the cancer had spread. Um, and so like, he was acting like a completely different human being than he normally would have. And that was like surreal for me to see because like, like I made a poop joke and he laughed and I was like, (laughs) like, this is like one of the most serious human beings that I know in my life. Like anytime I'd make some stupid joke, like, you know, he'd be like, oh, you?" you know, like like, he liked watching like BBC and CNN for fun, you know? And like. I was like, how is he laughing at, like, the poop joke I told my little sister? And then I was like, something's different completely. Like, like mentally, he's, like, completely changed. Because, because of the way the cancer was affecting his brain, like, he'd become a lot more, like, loose. And a lot more, just, like, um, a lot more, a lot less understanding of complex ideas and topics. Because, like, when you try to explain something to him, like, he'd have no idea. But he'd, he'd understand the basics. And I remember, like, feeling some type of way about that and crying a lot about it because I was like, oh, no, he's changed. But, like, later on, I, like, had to unlearn a lot of that and realize that there was a lot of ableism behind, like, what I was thinking at the time. But I remember that the last visit, he had become a lot closer to what I used to see him as. And so I was glad that, like, there'd been an improvement um, in his brain functioning. And that, like, he was more capable of digesting complex topics and, like, he could, like, hold, like, complicated conversation with someone. And so I was happy to, like, see him improving. And so, like, losing him so suddenly after that was, it was tough.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I can only imagine, especially when it seems like they're getting better. Like, what you just described of, like, it seemed like he was going back to his old self. And that must have been... A comforting thought and then to lose him so soon after is really heartbreaking so you were only 13 um that stands out to me because that's very young it's a very pivotal age as I mentioned before how did you cope with your with your dad's passing how did you process it all
0: um, I wrote a lot come to think of it, it actually it was my auntie who encouraged me to write the poem it wasn't my mom but my mom didn't enc- didn't encourage all of like you know the elders in our family to reach out to us and to suggest things to us. Uh, so she was like, by way, um, but like writing that poem the day that he died, and it's a poem that I've like shared with nobody, and like now it's like hidden in some notebook somewhere. I forget, but like it's not something that like I would like to ever share. Um, but like it helped me. Like it was such a like form of catharsis that like. I just started writing a lot more and like just writing my grief out. writing was a major form of processing for me throughout, like, you know, the the next couple of months writing along with, yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. I, I, Cause, because he passed away over the summer. And so we were on like summer vacation from school. um, And which honestly was like, is better and or more ideal because like, like I can't like understand like people who like lose a parent, like, In the middle of a semester. And then, like, the school expects them back, you know, like, you get what, like, one day off? And so I was glad that it it was like July 11th. And so, like, like, school didn't start back up until, like, end of August. And so, like, I had at the very least, like, a month and a half to, like, grieve before, like, trying to, like, do something in the nine to five of my day again, which I appreciated. And we came back home for the burial, and then we moved back home as a result. Um, And so it was just a whole lot of like family stuff for like the first month and a half, like going to this uncle, going to this auntie, going to this cousin, which like, you know, like I I was along for the ride because I was grieving, everyone else was grieving. I was like, you know, just like, like, and there's this like culture and expectation here of like, if you lose somebody like close to you, um, you grieve and everybody joins you in that grief. For a bit, for, like, you know, there's a culture of, like, if you're a widower or a widow, you're only supposed to wear black for, like, the first year after your partner dies, which is, which is like, a lot, you know? But, like, um, but like I, I find the culture helps with, like, there being certain things in, in, in space and, and, like, expectation for grief to be there after somebody passes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. Um, so my mom passed away on March 11 and the immediately the days following that we were surrounded by people. And like, you know, the, she passed away in Toronto. Um, and I just remember like the f- first couple of days after that, it was like our house was just always like there was always someone there. Um, you know, whether someone was bringing in food or someone was coming to visit, you know, to talk to my dad, to see how he was doing, there were all these people. And then, um, about five days later or so, we actually left Toronto to go to Bangladesh because my mom wanted to be buried in Bangladesh. So we flew her body back. And in Bangladesh, it was like Toronto times 10 We're like we were constantly surrounded. Like I remember landing in Bangladesh going to my house and it was like a swarm of my aunts just came over me like literally like a swarm of bees um and they were just like on me and with me the entire time and I ended up staying in Bangladesh for six weeks and I did not have like a single quiet moment like the only moments of quiet I had was at night when I'd go to sleep and I would just like weep in my bed alone because that those were the only times that I had. It's not that I wasn't allowed to cry around my aunts and uncles, but I think there was this weird thing of like I don't know, I didn't want to constantly be like that. Um so yeah, it's but it is interesting what you're saying about like that time boundness like in Bangladesh, in Islam actually, there is um you grieve for the first 4 days, you grieve uh In a specific way where you don't cook at home, you, I don't know, there are a bunch of rules. And then there's like the first 40 days. And after for the first 40 days, you pray and on the 40th day, you have like a big um, prayer service for the person. And so those first 40 days are very important. And so I was in Bangladesh for those first 40 days. And I'm really glad that I was there, you know, surrounded by family. You know, we were praying and doing all these things that I knew my mom would want us to do. But I remember flying back from Bangladesh to Toronto after 40 days and landing in Toronto and just being like, so that's it? Am I fixed now? Am I – what do I do now, you know? Because I actually feel – Coming back to Toronto was maybe one of the hardest days of that entire year because I came back to an empty house without her and that was brutal. It was devastating. And I remember feeling like, I, I thought like, you know, those 40 days, you grieve it out, you cry it out, and then you come back and you feel different. And I really didn't feel any different. If anything, I felt worse because I was like, oh, now I'm all alone and now I just have to sit here and feel these things and i can't even turn to an aunt or a cousin to be like what do i do um so yeah it's um it's really hard (laughs) that's the it's a short short version of that
0: (laughs) i completely feel you like there needs to be more like grief education just generally like 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 it should be part of school education you know like curriculums like And, like, more, like, parents should have these conversations with their children.
1: Yeah, I think it's totally. I I don't know what would be the right way to teach grief or death and dying in school. But there should be something. Because I remember growing up, like, all the stories I read about death or dying, it just was, like, now, you know, it it just, there was never any sort of, like, I don't know if follow through is the right word, but it was always just like people pass away and then life keeps going and that's it. Um, which is true on the very fundamental level that is accurate. (laughs) But I think like there was never any sort of understanding of, um, the emotional world behind that of like losing a person. It, I, I, I always say, like, I had eight months to prepare for my mom's death. My mom was sick for a long time, um, similar to your dad. Like, she had um, she had lung cancer, and she was diagnosed at stage four, and the doctor said, like, she's got six months. So it we, you know, keep her comfortable, probably going to be palliative care, but she's got six months. And so I had those six months, and she ended up making it longer than that. She lived for another eight months, but I had, like – eight months to just sort of be like, okay, I, I know it's coming. I know she's not going to like live another five years. I know that's not, I know, I know she's going to die. And still when it hit, when she actually died, it hit me. Like it literally took the air out of my lungs. Like I I, I couldn't, because I had, there's no way to prepare for that. Um, So I don't know how you would teach kids or anyone at any age, like even teenagers in high school. Like, I don't know how you teach them that, but I feel like we should start somewhere. (laughs)
0: Definitely. And like, I feel like it would help if like, like outside of like, outside of like teaching kids in general, I feel like it would help to like have someone, like my mom says that one of her biggest regrets is that she didn't put us in therapy, uh, right when it happened. because she says that like th- that like that would have like um, like helped a lot more than like what I could do uh, because I don't have that professional like capacity. But like I think like some sort of like the grief counselor in any form, you know, whether that be like an actual therapist or like one of those like um, like bots that you talk to online. Like I feel like some sort of like that process um is beneficial um to everyone because i ended up diving into a lot of that like when i first started pursuing therapy at a far far later age and like unpacking all of that like really helped me and i think it's something that like i would advise like everyone to unpack in some sort of way just in general people who have experienced grief because it can also be isolating as a child having experienced this massive grief and nobody around you gets you the only people who've lost parents are like 50 years old i remember going to school and like my friends like asking me what does my dad do and i say my dad's dead and like my friends would literally be like oh my god why did you say that that's making me think of my dad's mortality don't even talk to me about that i'm like these are people i consider friends you know but like they're children so like i forgive them um but like Like, I feel like, I mean, I feel even worse for my little sister, because she lost him when she was was seven, Um, you know? And so she barely has a couple memories still of him, you know? I'm grateful that I still have some. Yeah. Yeah, because I've always been jealous of my older siblings, because I was like, you had longer with him. Like, my sister was like 21 when he, wait, how old is she? Um, Yeah, I think she was like 21 when he passed. and, like, I was always, like, jealous that, like, she got to talk to him as, like, an adult talking to an adult because, like, I was always, like, I wish I could have, like, those conversations with him now and, like, see, like, what he'd think about me now and what I'm doing and, like, you know, like, like like I always ask myself, like, would he be proud of me?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my brother was 31 when my mom passed. And I, I didn't really think of it as a jealousy thing, but I definitely had that thought because my brother um, married his wife and my mom was still alive so my mom was you know she helped plan the wedding Um, and I remember after she died I went for a long time and I still have these thoughts where I'm like would I ever get married is there a point in me getting married if my mom's not there because I was at my brother's wedding watching my mom be I think that was maybe the best day of her life like Mm she was (laughs) so she was so happy to be seeing like her son getting married she was I don't have many photos of my mom where she's smiling really big but every photo from my brother's wedding my mom is beaming she's just (laughs) got like the biggest smile on her face I really maybe the best day of her life is when she had her kids I don't know but to me like that was the best day of my mom's life that I watched um and after she died I was like oh I don't I don't get to have that. And that still makes me really emotional. It makes me really sad that, you know, if I were to, you know, find someone, get married, all of that, like, my mom won't be there. And that's so sad. It's still, that's like, yeah, that's still really hard to think about. Um, so one thing I wanted to go back to was you mentioned that when your dad passed, you started writing right away. I, I mean, obviously, I was at a very different place in my life. Um, I couldn't write about my mom at first. I, I struggled to write about her for a long time. I think it took about six months, maybe longer, before I started writing about her because I just remember, like, It felt like my mom was so alive in my memories. She was so vividly present in my Mm -hmm. memories that I couldn't imagine taking that very alive, vivid, present, like, human being Mm -hmm. and putting that person on a flat piece of paper. Mm -hmm. I felt like I couldn't transfer, like, the person in my mind onto paper. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't write about her for a long time, I still struggle to write about her. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of the times when I try to write about her, I end up writing about my feelings about her or my experience of her. Mm -hmm. But I struggle to write about her as a person. So I'm very curious to know what your experience of writing about your dad was. First of all, the fact that you started writing so soon after, um, and then did writing about him did that experience change as you evolved as you grew up
0: honestly the majority of right i mean the poem that i wrote right when he died was more so about my feelings regarding his passing and my grief and me processing that through um writing um and like and so like i agree with you in that like it's very very it's next to impossible to like Capture somebody who has been like such a presence in your life through words. But I have never put that as my goal. Um, I'm more so just write to write, and I'm more so writing about my perspective and my relationship with him rather than um, like trying to capture him and his essence through words. and so um, I took a similar route to you, as you said. Um, and my writing about him over time has changed in that, like, most of my writing about him is through a random event that, like, triggers or, like, you know, like, sets something. You know what it's like when, like, you lose a parent and, like, something just reminds you of that out of the blue randomly and like the waves of grief just just through like a, like I remember one time I was listening to this song by this rapper called Yellow Wolf. Um, and I, I listened to a lot of hip hop re- um, religiously after my dad died because a lot of rappers don't have fathers. And so like, even though like, you know, like <laughs> even though like the case may be different, you know, like a lot of them, like a, a lot of them, the rapper, the fathers are generally passed away and dead. And so it's similar to me. But in a lot of the situations, the dads are just deadbeats who don't want to be a part of their life. But it's a similar sense of loss and grief of like not having um, a parent around. Um, and so I gravitated towards hip hop, and hip hop exposed me to a bunch of different stories of like, you know, growing up without a father and how that shapes and affects you. Um, and like when i'm listening to like a random yellow wolf song like he has a song where he's like um he's talking about his 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 dad because he has a deadbeat dad who's not a part of his life he like he talks about like growing up with a single mom and like the way that um affects you um and like i was like oh this guy's speaking to me because like Like, everything that he's talking about, he's talking about, like, a completely different experience. He's talking about growing up in Gadsden, Alabama, with a single mom, Um, you know? um, His his dad's not around. um, Completely different from me. But, like, I could relate to him. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, like, a lot of times when I was listening to songs like that, I'd, like, break down. And then I'd turn to writing um, as, like, a way to process these feelings. And it always helped me, like... Every time a random spell of grief hit, writing about it helped me process and helped me um, just like get it out of my system. And the writing has changed over time um, in that like, yeah, it's like tackles different things. But like, the, I mean, one of the ways I like to see it is I learned about this uh, Yoruba belief because I was, I was born in Nigeria. And like adopted into the Yoruba and Ibo peoples by like my like uncles and aunties um, in Nigeria, and so um, mm-hmm. I'm, there's this belief that like everybody um, has two lives, um, and I learned about this in university, which like this goes to show you the terrible states of like African education post colonialism. It's like why am I learning about like <laughs> African philosophy, thought, and religion for the first time when I leave the African continent? um like why didn't i learn about this back home um the belief is people have two lives the first life is you're born and then you die and then the second life extends until the last time somebody on this world who's living and breathing speaks your name and so your second life is more so like of like your legacy and your impact and like the way you have touched people um and like the second life can be incredibly long for terrible reasons right like Adolf Hitler is gonna have a second life into <laughs> infinity because of terrible things that he did. You know, <laughs> like it is, and so like it's not a morality. It's not a morality thing. It's not like a, you know like you are a good person. It's 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 an impact thing, and you can have a terrible impact or you can have a good impact. Um, but like the whole point of of, of living in like pre-colonial Yoruba land was to have your second life for as long as possible because that way you know. You've impacted. Um, and so for me, like through my writing about my father, I just see it as a way of extending his second life because he's impacted a lot of people, including me. And if I write about him, and if I had like a poem published about him in Best Canadian Poetry 2020, and that's literally paper, you know, that's going to go, you know, like into libraries and into people's bookshelves. And it's going to keep his second life going on for far longer than I'm alive because that book will outlive me.
1: This idea of the second life has been ringing around in my head nonstop for the past six months. Because it's the clearest explanation I've ever heard for this urge I have to talk about my mother all the time. I sometimes worry that I talk about her too much, that I share too many anecdotes about her, or that I just bring her up too often. We've been raised with this conditioning that speaking of the dead too much is impolite. But in reality, talking about the dead is all we can do to try to keep them with us. Because as long as we're still speaking their name or talking about their hobbies or just reminiscing about their favorite food, it's like they're still here with us. And that is the tiniest bit of comfort that we can hold on to. That's all this week. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts to listen. And please rate and leave us a review. It really helps. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at FindersGrievers, And write to us at findersgrievers at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'll see you in two weeks.